Welcome to the Von Nelson Podcast. With me today are lead portfolio managers, Marco Priani and Kevin Ross. Marco and Kevin run our international strategies, namely the international small cap, emerging market, and our co-portfolio managers on the global mid-cap strategy. Uh, today we're going to discuss an introduction to the international small cap space, why that space, why now, uh, why they find it attractive, and, and really give a little more insight on, on what we're seeing in that. Uh, both Marco and Kevin have, have recently received some you know, very nice accolades for their efforts in the space. Uh, they were recently named the 2021 Refinitive Lipper Fund Award for the International Small and Mid, and they're also named the top three foreign small mid strategy by U.S. News and World Report. Um, so with that, we'll, we'll dive right in, and, and you know, I think the first place to start would be, um, can you guys please define the international small cap space and, and, and what that looks like in, in terms of market cap and countries and things of that nature? Uh, yes, uh, thank you very much, Dan, of course. Um, the first thing to highlight is that uh, it's, uh, international small cap uh, is a developed market strategy. Uh, in terms of uh, geographies, 60% of the universe is uh, Western Europe, 30% is Japan, and 10% are developed countries uh, such as Australia, New Zealand, the developed side of Hong Kong, Singapore, and Israel. Uh, the uh, weighted average market cap in the universe is uh, around $3 billion. It's another class that is very well diversified in terms of sectors, with uh, uh, the four top sectors representing only 50% of the asset class. The uh, one thing to highlight is that there's a, a, a large number of securities, and those securities, that universe is... Uh, uh, increasing each year by uh, IPOs. For instance, since 2014, there were each year between uh, 90 and 150 uh, companies that have IPO'd into the space. And uh, this year is uh, so far likely to be a record year in that sense. The fact that uh, we are speaking here about a universe, depending on how you define it, between 25 and, and 3,000 names, you as a portfolio manager have the great advantage of not having to uh, make a decision about owning a security except based upon investment convenience and, and risk. Uh, it's not that uh, because the, the largest security in the space has only a weight of 30 basis points. That, that means that it is not uh, a big bet if you decide not to own it. Uh, you don't have to own any security in this space that you don't want to own. This, uh, that is something that is uh, very attractive of the space as well. So, Marco, th thank you for defining this. Um, one thing that we've seen historically is the U.S. dollar has had a substantial impact on, on the international space. Um, is this also the case for international small caps specifically? Um, and then how do you and Kevin manage the currency, and, and how does it impact returns of the asset class? As uh, with uh, any international investment that is unhedged, that is the, the case of uh, our portfolio and that is the case of, of the asset class, the uh, strength of the U.S. dollar is uh, 
a drag on the performance uh, of the asset class, and inversely, the weakening of the U.S. dollar helps the returns of the asset class uh, com computed in, in U.S. dollar terms, of course. Uh, over the last um, eight years, the uh, U.S. dollars have been, until uh, let's say the beginning of 2020, the U.S. dollar has uh, been strengthening against a set of currencies among which the, the ones that uh, uh, are included in our universe. Uh, that is, uh, that has led to a drag over the last five years of around 27%. That has started to reverse over the last eight months of 2020. The U.S. dollar has been a tailwind uh, for the asset class of around 800 basis points. We think that uh, the, there are very relevant macro um, conditions uh, for the U.S. dollar to continue to, uh, to weaken in, in the future. Of the six events that we consider as uh, relevant uh, for the relative performance of currencies, uh, five of them are uh, flashing red uh, for the U.S. dollar. Among those, uh, we could cite, for instance, the, the, the most relevant is uh, the inflation expectations. The inflation expectations are significantly higher uh, for uh, the U.S. economy vis-a-vis uh, -vis the, the economies within our, our universe. Uh, another element that we think is, is uh, very relevant is the current account deficits. Uh, that means if the country imports more than exports. The fact that the U.S. has uh, a current account deficit is uh, almost structural, I would say. Um, but the level of the current account deficit uh, as a percentage of GDP has been increasing materially, uh, almost doubling since 2017. Uh, that is uh, negative uh, for, for the U.S. dollar uh, because the country needs to borrow from the rest of the world by issuing debt. Another uh, negative element for the U.S. dollar, uh, this is a big one in terms of how the magnitudes have increased due to COVID, is the budget balance. The government, the government uh, spends significantly in excess of uh, the revenues, uh, U.S. government, and has to issue, of course, uh, securities, and that increases the public debt. The uh, budget was uh, the budget deficit as of 2015 was uh, around 2.5% uh, of GDP, and in 2020, because of the COVID expenditures, it increased to it's a whopping number, 16% of GDP. Even in 2021, it is estimated that it will be uh, about about. 10% of GDP. Uh, this, of course, affects the, the, the uh, other uh, red flag, that is the level of the public debt. 
the public debt now is uh, expected to be at the end of uh, 2021 around 130% of GDP. That is the highest uh, level uh, since World War II. Um, this has a lot of negative um, uh, connotations. Uh, it reduces the leeway for counter-cyclical measures. It increases, and this is important for the people that uh, lend the money to the U.S., the risk of debt monetization, and, of course, it's a burden for future generations. Another element that is uh, negative um, for the U.S. vis-à-vis the, the currencies within our universe is the situation of the uh, USD as uh, the world reserve currency and the world trading currency. If you look uh, and you just through history, you see that uh, this characteristic of a currency is something that uh, has lasted for, say, 100 years. Before the uh, US dollar assumed this position at the end of World War I, uh, it was British pound, the one that had it. Uh, before that, uh, uh, since uh, the Battle of Waterloo, before that it was France. This has uh, a lot of uh, positives for the U.S., uh, because this uh, makes that uh, about 90% of uh, uh, international trade is uh, transacted in U.S. dollars. And the U.S. dollar is around 60% of central bank reserves. That means that there's demand for the U.S. dollar. Now, uh, lately, the U.S. Uh, has been uh, exceeding, the, the, let's say, the, the convenient use uh, privilege uh, by weaponizing it against uh, political enemies. And that has led to... Uh, some countries uh, using other mechanisms, for instance, the bilateral agreements between countries, China, Russia, on oil. So we can think that the demand for the U.S. dollar trading currency uh, will be er eroded uh, slowly. So there are several, uh, several elements that point to the uh, a multi-year period of uh, the type that uh, we know in the past in which the USD is likely to uh, decline vis-a-vis -vis other currencies. And that certainly makes a, a really strong case on, on why you'd want to start looking internationally. And as, as I, I speak with allocators and, and look out at, at investors, um, you know, I think a lot of folks as they look outside the U.S., they look at it in, in the large cap space. And you know, I think it might be helpful at this point to just take a look um, at, through the lens of, of comparing what does international small cap look like versus its EFA counterpart in, in a large cap. When we look at the MSCI EFA benchmark, which is representative of the large cap international universe, uh, there's data going back more than 20 years uh, since the founding of the benchmarks. There are several takeaways that we found from our analysis of this data that we can highlight today. Um, the first is that international small cap has delivered higher returns of more than 200 basis points annualized per year compared to the large cap counterparts at lower levels of risk uh, as we define by volatility. This means that international small cap delivers better risk adjusted returns while also offering greater portfolio diversification uh, and higher EPS growth. 
putting some numbers behind this since 2010, the total return for MSCI EFA small cap was 220% compared against the EFA large cap total return of 181%. The underperformance of EFA large cap compared to international small cap took place uh, despite the large cap having enjoyed more multiple expansion over this time period. Um, given, given the negative earnings shocks that we experienced last year resulting from COVID, uh, you can see that multiple expansion come through and expansion of the price of book multiples of the large cap stocks. But if you normalize uh, the earnings, uh, you'll see a similar dynamic uh, take place. One of the most important reasons uh, in our view for the outperformance of EFA small cap during this time period has been faster earnings growth. International small cap delivered more than 450 basis points higher EPS growth on average per year, which was a combination of higher sales growth and, and better margin expansion over time period. If we look at the earnings outlook uh, in a post-COVID world, um, using 2019 as our starting point and incorporating sell-side uh, forecasts, um, they're much more bullish uh, for the international small cap space um, and compared to what we've experienced uh, over the last uh, 10 years. So if we assume uh, stable earnings multiples, uh, this, this suggests to us, given the discounts for international small cap, that the performance differential that we've seen over the last decade could continue in favor of international small cap and arguably even expand uh, in the years ahead. And then finally, just looking at the risk, um, it's important to highlight that the outperformance of international small cap is not supported by any material difference in risk levels uh, based on our measure of historical volatility uh, over the last 20 years of data. This difference in volatility between small cap and large cap in the international small, small cap base is de minimis, uh, which is very much different than what has been seen historically in the case of the U U.S. Uh, markets, where the risk of U.S. small caps is materially higher as compared to the large cap. And, and thinking about this, um, you know, for, from a U.S. allocator's perspective, I'm, I'm sure you've, you've probably taken a look at, you know, what we're seeing here with the U.S. and the U.S. small cap. Have you done much work comparing the two universes, the international small cap universe and, and the U.S. small cap space? Yeah, there's certainly uh, some similarities, but, but uh, there's also uh, pretty material differences that we can highlight as well. Um, our findings suggest that international small caps offer a higher quality opportunity set of companies with better growth profiles today, which are trading at what we believe to be unjustified discounts to their U.S. counterparts. So again, looking back at the data uh, since, uh, over the last 10 years, uh, we can see that international small caps offered investors higher earnings growth, uh, but they also did not experience uh, the same magnitude of multiple expansion as we have seen here in the U.S. Uh, when we consider the, the, the uh, internal view, and as Marco talked about with the U.S. dollar, uh, we think that's created an interesting setup for the international small cap asset class, where you've got a strong earnings growth outlook uh, supported by discounted valuations, and what should be underlying FX tailwinds. Comparing, uh, compared to the dynamic in the U.S. small cap market, uh, where you have a material number of companies in the Russell 2000 that are not profitable, and, and the most updated uh, estimates we've seen are as many as 40% of the universe that's not currently profitable, the opportunity set in the international small cap universe is on average of, of much higher quality. Uh, we can see that through higher return metrics, whether that's ROA, ROE, as well as better balance sheets uh, with lower levels of leverage and overall lower volatility of stock returns uh, over the last decade. 
Uh, the outperformance of the U.S. markets over the past decade has brought us to a point where the international markets look extremely discounted, uh, both on an absolute and a relative basis. Uh, just putting some numbers behind uh, the discount on next year's earnings, for instance, is 36% uh, for the international small cap markets. And on a price-to-book value basis, it's more than 38%. In our view, these discounts do not appear to be justified uh, based on the superior average business fundamentals in the international small-cap universe, the growth outlook being offered, as well as a higher dividend yield uh, by the universe, which is more than two times uh, what you receive in the U.S. small-caps. Uh, we believe that these dynamics provide a timely opportunity for U.S. investors to look at getting additional exposure to the asset class. And it's certainly interesting, right? I mean, you touched on a couple of different things. One, you know, the, the looking at something like the Russell 2000, the non-profitable companies that exist in the U.S., um, you mean, know, these fundamental discounts that we're comparing when we look at the two universities. Um, you guys touched earlier on, on the IPO market, um, which is, you know, certainly meaningful. Um, it's looking at the, at the lack thereof, uh, within the U.S. compared to what we're seeing in the international small space. Um, you know, another big topic that continues to pop up, and, and I would imagine that you were, we're starting to see this um, more and more internationally, and, and it's now um, becoming you know highly widespread uh, over here in the states. But uh, how about uh, through the ESG lens? You know, what does what ISC international small caps look like um, when you're starting to examine it through um, the idea of ESG? That is a very important uh, topic, not just uh, uh, not just for the asset class, but for the team as well. Uh, we are uh, convinced that uh, uh, ESG risks sooner or later will be uh, will be priced uh, by the market, and that comes from our uh, investment experience. For some years, we managed uh, in parallel two strategies: one that was uh, ESG screened and another that wasn't. And the performance of the ESG screen was uh, significantly better, and that uh, made us convinced of the importance of uh, really valuing uh, all these elements when you do your fundamental research. In terms of the, the E part of ESG, uh, you can say that uh, firmly, uh, when you have a portfolio of uh, small-cap companies, you will have a magnitudes lower impact uh, compared to the one that you have in, in terms of large cap. And that comes uh, from the fact that uh, you have the, the large um, oil companies, the large resource companies that are really, really relevant in, in the international space, both in developed markets, in emerging markets, as part of the um, of that large cap non US universe, and that is something that you don't have in our universe. So, the, the, if you think in terms of environmental impact, uh, in uh, you think in terms of greenhouse uh, gas emissions, you are always better with uh, an international small cap uh, portfolio. In terms of the, the governance, we interact uh, very frequently 
and uh, that is a key part of our investment process, the interaction with the management of the companies that we invest in. So even though you can say that international small cap, because of the nature of the beast, uh, is something that tend to have lower governance standards vis-a-vis the large cap, is something that you really uh, can uh, manage and monitor through active management. So, so I, I have a couple of follow-ups here, um, but first, you know, we'll, we'll certainly want to talk about the portfolio and, and, and the sectors and themes, but before we get that, one, one thing that just jumped out to me is you talked a bit about management interaction and, and, and why that's relevant. Um, so, you know, kind of two pieces here. You know, one, you know, is it really that more, more significant or important when you're looking at um, international small cap securities uh, companies? Um, and then two, um, you know, we know that you guys have a, you know, very diversified team, um, speaking multiple languages across multiple continents. Um, do you find that the, the multilingual advantage, um, really truly exists out there? Uh, absolutely, Dan. I think that there are, um, material informational inefficiencies in the international small cap space and having that local language and cultural understanding is critical, um, and something that the team places a, a high level of importance on. Um, in general, our philosophy on management interaction, uh, we think that it's inversely proportional to the size of the companies. Uh, the smaller the size of the companies, the less you have lawyers involved and, and the more candid the conversations with the management will be. In our, in our markets, we're dealing with differences in language, differences in information and accounting disclosures, low uh, sell-side analyst coverage, um, for instance, the, the average number of sell-side analysts uh, for a company in our universe is about three. You can contrast that to the S&P 500, which is greater than 15, for instance. So these informational inefficiencies that exist in our markets are very high and allow us as active managers who have an experienced team with the analytical, cultural, and language skills uh, to navigate investing in these markets to be successful. In general, our discussion with management teams deals with uh, – Issues that fall within two limits, what is already published by uh, the companies and available in the public domain. And then, of course, uh, we avoid any material non-public information on the other side. So within those two bands, uh, there's a wide range of issues that we can cover to help us determine an appropriate conviction for an investment idea. Um, given our emphasis on bank companies that have competitive advantages, a low risk of financial distress, and a high-quality management teams, um, it's very regular that we'll have several takeouts on average per year, whether that's from a strategic buyer or a private equity buyer. And uh, having that uh, 50% discount to our intrinsic value, um, oftentimes we'll see uh, that value get realized uh, through private market transactions and takeouts. Um, just to put some numbers behind it, um, we did about 500 meetings in 2019 of which two-thirds of those uh, were with company management teams and one-third with industry experts and sell-side analysts. Uh, so we think that this is an area where we can garner informational advantages um, and, and the team has the language skills and the cultural understanding in order to, to, to um, take advantage of those inefficiencies that exist. All right, so when you tell me 500 meetings, um, you know, I'm, I guess immediately I've jumped to, you know, I'm really curious, how, could this, how does this play out in the portfolio? Do you start identifying investment themes, you know, are there, are there secular tr- growth drivers that just jump out at you? Um, how, how does the portfolio start to, start to take shape, and, and what themes would you see that are represented inside it? Sure. I'll, I'll start with one theme, and then Marco can expand on another. And, and 
we build a portfolio from a bottoms-up perspective and try to find the best ideas within our universe uh, of 60 to 80 names. Um, but resulting from that, there are some themes that come through that we can highlight today. Uh, so one that we can start with is uh, the self-storage industry. Um, if you look at in our markets, uh, Europe and the Nordics, for instance, uh, the industry is, is decades behind uh, the maturation level of what you see in the U.S., and their adoption and per capita consumption of self-storage as a product and service. Uh, if you look at the per capita footprint of the industry in many European countries is less than 5% of what we have here in the, U in the U.S. Certainly there are some cultural differences uh, involved, um, and we would not expect Europe to get to the full level of the U.S., uh, but we think that that illustrates um, the opportunity for the industry to continue to gain mind share and expand its footprint uh, over the, the decades ahead. Uh, consequently, the industry is growing at more than organically two times uh, the GDP growth rates uh, in Europe and the Nordics. In addition to this, we are attracted to the industry because of its defensive nature. It has high revenue visibility uh, based on monthly contracts, which can be adjusted immediately for cost inflation that may come through. Uh, it has high retention rates with their customers of, of greater than 90% and high occupancy rates. Uh, during the pandemic, industry revenues have been extremely resilient uh, with no material changes in occupancy delinquency rates, or any deterioration in rental rates. One positive de development we have seen uh, recently is with the acceleration of e-commerce penetration uh, because of the pandemic, many small businesses are utilizing self-storage facilities for additional warehouse and logistics space uh, for their businesses. So that provided a, a new organic growth driver for the industry. Thanks, Kevin. That, that's, that's really helpful. And I, I believe, Marco, do you, do you have something this you'd like to touch on? Yeah, one thing that you can see very clearly within the, the weights, the sectorial weights within the portfolio is uh, the fact that we think that there's a significant opportunity uh, investing in IT, uh, particularly in Europe, in order to uh, bet on closing of the digital gap between the U.S. And, and Europe that, for instance, McKinsey estimates that gap at around 35%. This gap has developed uh, originally uh, at the beginning of the, of the 2000s, and it has a, an origin that is regulatory in nature. Um, in the first decade of the century, the European authorities hoped to drive down prices of broadband by forcing the network owners to open their network at discounted prices to new entrants. In the U.S., unlike uh, the situation in Europe, that type of regulation existed only for voice. The result, uh, but not for data, no? the result of this was a lack of incentives to invest in broadband networks for uh, telcos in Europe. And over the following decade, the investment in a network per household in Europe was half of that of the U.S. Uh, in the U.S., that uh, regulation uh, led to a trillion and a half of investments in cable, mobile, fiber, and this has helped the development of Internet-based business. The demand for things like a mobile, cloud, cybersecurity, 
exceed in general the capacity to these companies to de deliver services uh, with the scarcity of engineers being the main factor uh, that prevents the growth at uh, even higher levels that now uh, are high single digits to, to meet teams for this type of uh, service companies. And almost all of the um, companies that are leading uh, this uh, digital closing of uh, the gap uh, between Europe and, and the U.S. are within our space. Even the, the largest ones like uh, Capgemini or Atos fall in the mid-cap category rather than in, in the large ones. Uh, that is why we have a 10% of the weight of the sector that sees uh, growth uh, that exceeds uh, many times the GDP. Well, this is really helpful, and I know we're starting to run a little long for everybody, and we certainly appreciate the time and the insight here. Um, but I do have you know, just one last question for you. As you're looking at the portfolio, you know, what, what excites you about it? Um, any countries or region that you, you find really attractive right now? Um, and anything that you'd like to, to leave the listeners to about the, about the overall strategy? We uh, are excited about all of our geographies, but from a tactical standpoint, I would say that uh, it makes sense at this stage to have an overweight in the UK that is uh, the way the portfolio is positioned. And uh, it makes sense because the UK will have a faster and uh, larger rebound from the COVID situation compared to Europe and Japan. When you say that it will have a, a, a faster rebound, you just have to look at the dynamics on the ground and the numbers in terms of vaccines per percentage of the population. Uh, when uh, Europe, the Eurozone at this stage, when we are talking now, is in the mid-teens and uh, the UK is approaching uh, 40%. So those, uh, this determines that... Uh, the Eurozone is uh, thinking about additional lockdowns or going through additional lockdowns, while in the UK you have a, a gradual opening of the economy. That has to do with uh, the um, uh, with the speed of the rebound, and also the, the uh, depth or the height of the rebound is related to the fact that the UK has suffered more from COVID. And this is related to the fact that it has a more uh, service-oriented economy as opposed to Japan, as opposed to the EU. That determines that, uh, that determined last year that uh, uh, the decline was almost 10% uh, of GDP uh, compared to around 7% for uh, Western Europe and the Eurozone. This will determine that the rebound will be also stronger in the UK. Valuation-wise, uh, there's no material difference. Uh, that's why, uh, from a tactical standpoint, it makes sense and is attractive uh, at this point uh, investing in the UK. Just to recap some, some reasons why the team is very enthusiastic about the opportunity for international small cap. Uh, this universe is a large and growing opportunity set that in our view is ripe for active management. Average, we're, we've got a high quality businesses that we can invest in with strong earnings growth outlook ahead as vaccines are rolled out and as economies reopen, as, as Marco mentioned in the case of the UK. Uh, the, the 
companies in the opportunity set on average are trading at discounted valuations, both on an absolute basis and compared to other geographies, asset classes that can invest in. For U.S. investors, uh, it offers significant diversification benefits with lower uh, levels of risk and volatility. And you also have a tailwind and an FX kicker uh, with our outlook for the U.S. dollar to weaken over the medium to long term, which should enhance returns for the asset class. Well, thank you, uh, both Marco and Kevin. This, this has been you know, really insightful for me, uh, hopefully for the listeners as well. You know, very much enjoyed having you on here. Um, we look forward to continuing the conversation. We'll, we'll have you on for the, the product recaps uh, at the end of the quarter, and, and hopefully we can uh, do something along the lines of this again here in the future. So thank you again, and I look forward to chatting here soon. The views, information, and or opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Von Nelson and its employees. Von Nelson does not verify and assumes no responsibility for the accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast. The primary purpose of the information, opinions, and thoughts presented in this podcast is to educate and inform. This podcast, or any podcast in the series, does not constitute professional investment advice or services and any reliance on the information provided is done at your own risk. Past performance is not an indication of future performance. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that the entire contents of this podcast are the property of Von Nelson and, or used by Von Nelson with permission and are protected under U.S. copyright and trademark laws.